Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's sermon podcast at Yarmouth Wesleyan. We hope that you are encouraged by the message that you're about to hear. Uh, And we would really appreciate uh, if you would subscribe on Apple Music or follow us on Spotify. That really helps us continue uh, to do the work that we are doing. So thanks again for tuning in and enjoy the message. It's Thursday night, and we're at the church. And typically on a Thursday night at this time, we're pacing, we're editing, we're pulling the last-minute service details together. But I don't know when you're going to be watching this, but when we recorded this, we've got a bit of a snowstorm on our hands. Uh, We've got the wind, we've got blowing, we've got snow on the road. School was released early. And so we made the decision uh, yesterday to cancel the Thursday night service. We love doing church Thursday night. But in, in lieu of the weather coming, in light of the holidays coming, and extra services, and all that kind of stuff, we said, let's, let's cancel the formal service, but let's still record this so that people have something to worship to at home and with uh, as a family. So this service might feel actually like how we used to do the services. Uh, when the pandemic first hit, we would record in pieces, and then Tom or Brett would stitch the whole service together in one, one flowing service. But then the last few months, we've just been recording our service. We record whatever happens here, and you get to watch it at home. But today, it's pieces. It's snow is blowing. We're kind of hanging out, just me and you. Uh, if you saw this sanctuary, it is literally me, you, and Tom lurking around in the shadows. But it is uh, an empty room. There's nobody here. So we're just going to have a conversation. Uh, by this time, you probably also know that our Christmas Eve plans have blown up. Uh, the province made a change to the restrictions uh, yesterday for us on Wednesday of this week and dropped our numbers from 200 to 100. And that just changes everything for us. So I'm not going to unpack it here. I will have unpacked it on Facebook Live already by this time when you're watching this. So you can watch that video. You can email our church. We will walk you through the steps for Christmas Eve. But I just want to, while I have whoever I have on here mentioned, if you have not heard yet, our Christmas Eve service has changed. The, the, the four services at 4.30 and 6 are no more. There is a new plan, new restrictions, new guidelines, and we will walk and step with them. So if you don't have that, please go get that directly after watching this service. So we, we are, we're landing the plane. Uh, two months ago, we set out with the agenda to say, if you would hang with us over the next eight weeks, we would start preaching in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we would land the plane eight weekends later today in Revelation. It, it felt very intimidating, but we were excited by it. And so here we are. We are on the eighth weekend. We're landing the plane in Revelation. And as we said, you would get to walk in on Christmas Eve, hopefully by God's grace, understanding how the narrative works, what God is up to, and how we fit in his story. So I want to land the plane today, but I want to start by talking about a TV show that started in 2016. In 2016, there was a show released and aired called The Good Place. Now, I don't know if you've seen it. It it doesn't really matter. I will boil down the premise for you real quick right here, right now. And I'll tell you right now, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the whole series. So if you just want to fast forward me a couple minutes if you want to watch it. But otherwise, here's the deal. The Good Place aired in 2016, and the opening scene is a woman sitting in a waiting room, and she gets inv- invited in to another room by Ted Danson. And so uh, the story starts, she goes in the room, she sits down, and 
basically what she finds out is that she has died and she's in heaven. She's being interviewed by Ted Danson, I forget his character's name, and they're discussing Welcome to the Good Place. The opening show walks around as she meets different people in the good place. She understands how the good place works, different features about it, and so on and so forth. And it's not too long into the episode where, again, spoiler alert, she finds out she doesn't belong there. Somehow she's tricked the system. Her files have been mistaken. She should be in the bad place, but she has found herself in the good place. And so you can guess as well as I do, the series is about how does a woman who is not supposed to be in the good place stay in the good place? She doesn't want to go back. And so if you watch through, the, it's only four seasons long, but if you watch through the show, she is escapade after escapade, scene after scene, trying to figure out how do I stay here? How do I keep tricking people? I want to remain in the good place. Now we fast forward to the last, the last show, the last episode of the series, and here's the premise of the last episode. They have worked all this time to stay in the good place, and the last episode is that the good place, as perfect as it is, is boring. They want out of the good place. Get to heaven, work to stay in heaven, only to find out, I don't want heaven. And so the last scene is actually these people who have, who have worked so hard to be there being released from heaven, being vaporized, because heaven, what they discover, perfection, what they discover, is boring. Imagine getting to heaven and thinking it's boring. Now, you may have not seen that show, but I beg to imagine how many people who have gone to church who have believed that when you die and you're a good person, you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven, and maybe you believe you sat on the clouds, you played harps, you sang songs to God for eternity, deep down below the surface where you'd hate to admit it, you thought, eh, that seems boring. And so you aren't sure what to believe about heaven because it hasn't sounded real appealing. Now, I don't know what you all believe. Maybe it's something different. The idea of how this story ends is huge conversation. Uh, you, you want to strike up a conversation with people to ask them, what do you believe about heaven? Or better yet, what do you believe about hell? Do you believe there is a heaven? Do you believe there is a hell? Who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? What if you've been bad your entire life but call it to God in the last minute? Do you get to go to heaven? What if you've been good your entire life but reject God the last minute? Do you have to go to hell? Is hell real, and can you have a real hell and not have a real heaven, or vice versa? There's all these questions about what is after death. How does our story end? Now, the hard part about preaching on how our story ends is, is a few things. One of the problems with preaching about how our story ends is that up to this point, we have been preaching backwards back to Genesis, back to the fall, back to Israel, back to exile, the cross, the Holy Spirit coming. And today we switch the narrative from preaching back to preaching forward. Everything we have discussed happened, and how the story ends is yet to happen. That makes it kind of difficult to preach on. The other issue with preaching on how our story ends is that nobody can agree. I went to Kingswood back in 2001, and I remember taking a class on Revelation. We're going to study eschatology. How does this all come to an end? 
And I sat there at eight in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I sat in the class and I listened to professors say, now one camp believes that in the end time, this will happen. However, the other camp believes this will happen. However, there's another camp who believes this third variable. And for an entire semester, it was theological statement, however, theological statement, but however. And basically what the class was, was a bunch of I don't knows tied together by howevers. How do you write an exam on a class that nobody can agree on? How do you preach a sermon on how this is going to end if the leading minds are not entirely sure? Third reason why it's hard to preach on this stuff, and maybe you will resonate with this one the most, there's so many details. There's so many descriptions and prophetic images and poetry. Uh, I dare say Revelation might be the least read book of the Bible. It, It intimidates people, and yet it's probably the number one book of the Bible people have asked me to preach from. Because they don't understand it. There's dragons and demons and animals of different kinds and creatures than we have on this earth. And there's scrolls and tablets and there's all this stuff happening. And the lake of fire in church. Pastor, preach on this. And I'll be honest, I feel intimidated. There's so much of that 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 I have yet to learn and to figure out. So what are we going to preach on for the next few minutes? I don't want to go down all the things that I don't know. I want to lay out to you a few things that we do know. For all the things that we're uncertain about, there's a few things that the church has rallied around to give them hope in difficult times. Whether it be persecution, whether it be trials and tragedy, there's a couple key elements to how this story ends that the church has clung to, the church has written beautiful songs about, pastors have preached, paintings have been painted. There's a few things that we kind of lean into, and so I want to unpack them for you uh, today. And and the first thing we, we find in Scripture that we do know and that we do cling to is that Jesus will come back. We ended last week's sermon, or I should say we started last week's sermon, by after Jesus resurrects, he meets with his, his disciples in Bethany. While he's preaching there, he says, like, don't depart, but wait. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power. We, we unpacked resurrection power. But if you read to the end of that section, in verse 11, it says this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They then waited. He's gone. He's coming back. And they kept thinking it would be next year. Next year. His return is imminent. And they waited. And here we are, and we are waiting. Admittedly, recent generations have not really clung to this idea the way generations of old have. If you go back and talk to your parents, grandparents down the line, there were generations that rallied around and clung to the idea that Jesus is coming back soon and very soon. But as the soon and very soon raged on, and maybe as our suffering got lesser and lesser, as our world wars faded and faded, as our economy got better and better, what were we waiting for? Here is pretty good. 
And so it seems like the better off we are, the less we anticipate what we'll be. And then 2020 found us. All of a sudden, 2020 hit us like a ton of bricks. And people started saying, this is the end times. I have had more end times conversations in 2020 than the previous five years combined. We're suffering again. We're in agony again. We're in trials again. Maybe this is the end. I don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus will come back. But here's the deal. When we read Revelation 19, he comes back a little different than he came the first time. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, sorry, he is clothed, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a passage. That is some imagery. That is some poetic language. If the Jewish people waited for the Messiah to come, it's the church that's waiting for the return of the king. If Jesus came the first time subtly as a baby lying in a manger, it's the glorious King Jesus who returns triumphantly riding on a white horse. He comes twice, and he comes differently. It's the lyrics of O Holy Night that didn't just get it right for Christmas, they got it right for us. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There is this anticipation that our king is coming once again. Now, we also learn why he's coming for. In Revelation 20, it says that Jesus comes to end death. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the sermon that terrified us as kids. This was the sermon when the pastor would preach and talk about the fire and the raging, and this was the one that didn't draw us to God, but literally scared the hell out of us. This was the one that we didn't know what to do with. It was used as a, a leverage point. It was used as something to lean in. It was something to be afraid of. It doesn't have to be. Jesus offers us another way. Jesus offers us life and life to the full. 
But the fact remains that when Jesus comes back, he does come to destroy. And what he comes to destroy in this passage, first and foremost, is death itself. Our king returns not just to conquer death, but to kill death. It's death itself and all of its effects, the curse and the, the, the sin and the curse of sin is taken and it in of itself is thrown into the lake of fire. What does it look like to conquer death, to kill death? I was thinking this week, it's no shock to anybody that our community is hurting. Our community is grieving. And for he- to hear that Jesus is coming back to kill death itself is why the church rejoices. It's why the church hopes, but we can be honest. We are weary of death. We're tired of death. We're tired of grieving. As I preach here tonight and as I pray for our community, I'm weary for our community. Our weary soul needs to rejoice that there is a new day coming. But we're here. We are here before there, but there is coming. We look at people who are going through difficult seasons. They need something to hope in. They need to know this is not all there is and all there will be. Our king will return and defeat the death and the effects of death. Jesus just doesn't come just to conquer death. Jesus comes to usher in new. Our story started uh, seven weeks ago. We're on our eighth week. started seven weeks ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And then it wasn't. And it wasn't for a long time. But in the beginning, God created, and then in Revelation 21, then I saw. I, I picture Genesis chapter 1, where God steps back and says, I see that it is good, followed by sin and death and curse and loss, ending with, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, Again, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. When it says new, when when John uses new, he is not meaning if something is over and you receive something as new. He is saying he is coming to make new. He is coming to renew. You'll hear people say, God is going to destroy the world. No, God is going to destroy sin and death. God is going to renew the world. See, even in the flood, God destroyed. He did not wipe out. There is a renewing effect 
that God is doing. What we see when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, the resurrection in Jesus is the, is the foreshadowing of the cosmic resurrection that is coming. Our God is into making all things new by renewing. In Colossians 1, it says, and through him, through Jesus, he came to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. What was inaugurated at the cross will be consummated one day when Jesus comes again. The other thing we see in this passage, beyond the cosmic resurrection power, is we see that there's a new home. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you how old I was when this point clicked. My entire childhood and up into my adult years, the whole point of my Christian faith and the whole point of avoiding doing wrong was that I could go to heaven one day when I die. And yet the concept of do I go to heaven when I die is scripturally hard to find. What we will see is that the gospel, the good news, the point of Jesus' resurrection the reconciling of all things to himself and the new heavens and the new earth is not that I get to go. It's that God gets to come. See, what we see here is not us flying away, but a marriage between heaven and earth. See, we go back to Genesis and we look. In the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There was a marriage and an intimacy and there was a fracture and a, and, a, and a brokenness that happens. And all through the Old Testament, God was at a distance. God was in a tent. God was in a temple. In the New Testament, God is out there, and we are flesh and blood down here. And then Jesus comes on a rescue mission to bring something new. And God sent his Holy Spirit to reside in us as a tabernacle. And that as great as that was, is still not the ultimate reconciliation. There's more. By the time we come to the end, it's not just that God is out there and his spirit is here. It's that he is coming and crashing in on this party to be with us. It's that God dwells here. It's that the garden that he started is now a city that he'll call home. It's bringing the story together. This is better than we often think. We started this series by saying we want to walk through the gospel. Journey with us. Let us go back and go from the beginning. Otherwise, we will say the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins and I'll go to heaven when I die. And while there are flickers of truth in that, and while it's not less than that, it's better than that that God made us to have an intimate relationship, that we broke it in the fall. God, not willing to quit on us, selected a people group, not because they were amazing, but because he was gracious. He asked them to be his representatives. They wandered around and found themselves into exile. They were not only not able to take care of themselves, they were not able to be his representatives. And so God said, I need to send a rescuer. Jesus comes down to rescue Israel from themselves and ultimately to rescue us from ourselves. He says they're still not going to be able, they're free, but they're not empowered. 
So not only do I need to free them, I'm actually going to send my resurrection power. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to reside inside of them so they can be my people and be my representatives and be my witnesses. And that's still not all. He said, one day I'm going to come back to them and I will be their people. I will be their God and I will live and dwell among with them without death, without tears, and without grief. He's making all things new, church. We are on a glorious mission. It has pain, it has wounds, and we get hurt on the way. But this is not all there is. There's so much more to the story. Our God is coming.